innovation in education. I'm your host, David Adams, CEO of the Urban Assembly. And on this show, we bring guests every single episode who have made things work in public education. This show is about the innovators. This show is about the folks who are solving problems. This show is about making things work in education. Now, there's a lot of shows out there talking about what's wrong in the education systems, and those are great shows. There's some shows talking about what we're not doing well, and there's a lot to learn from those, but that's not this show. This show is going to be featuring educators who are making things work for young people and improving public education. I'm here with Dr. Sean Nelms. Dr. Nelms is the superintendent of East Upper and Lower Schools, formerly East High School in Rochester, New York, a new position that was created through a unique partnership between the New York State Education Department, Rochester City School District, and the University of Rochester. As the Educational Partnership Organization superintendent for East, Sean has been charged and executed with creating a school reform model that can be replicated in urban settings throughout the United States. Now, in 2018, he was named the first William and Sheila Kohner Director for the Center of Urban Education Success at the Warner School. And in that role, he led the center's efforts to support the success of K-12 urban schools, both locally and nationally, through a combination of research, relationship, and commitment to pursue and share best practices. Sean is one of our nation's leading educators and has been an inspiration for me with regards to making things work in public education. Welcome to our show, Sean. Tell me about your understanding of what's happened in East High and how that reflects what we can learn from improving public education. That's a very generous introduction. And, and I say that because I think often people focus on the outcome, like moving a school system from a 29% graduation rate eight years ago to 86%. People get a little bit preoccupied with the grad rate. I appreciate the question because you are focused more on the process. Like, how do we get there? And we'll talk about this in, in a bit, but the work of building coherence throughout the organization is what led to that outcome. But there's other outcomes too that people don't talk about, like student engagement defined by kids coming to school and engaging in school and finding their voice and uh, low teacher turnover and staff turnover rates and sustained administrative teams and going on to be promoted, becoming superintendents and principals across different systems. I That's the real benefit of this work is we're able to create this space of innovation that is now impacting systems throughout the country. And that's what I'm most proud of. When the university was approached in 2014-15, to assume this school, the state had pretty much given the school board five options. One was close the school altogether. It's the oldest school in Rochester. So imagine this, like the first of its kind being eliminated because of poor performance. Wow. To give it to a charter school network. And at that time, the charter school networks, you know, they prefer to start an elementary and grow their schools out. I know. Um, that makes the most sense. <laughs> you know, you create synergy with families and community partnerships and starting a school at grade seven. We moved it back to grade six, but starting at grade seven is not ideal because there's so many issues that may have manifest themselves in that kid's schooling experience of being undertaught and underserved that it actually, sometimes they express themselves differently when they get into high school. So that wasn't an attractive. Given it to the State University of New York system, removing half the kids and removing half the teachers was a fourth model. Then the fifth one was something called, as an out of time school or receivership model where you hire someone or an entity to come in and assume responsibility for the school. And they report directly to the state and the school board is a partner, but it doesn't have a governing authority over that particular partnership. 
And throughout that partnership, that receiver is able to renegotiate teacher terms and and staffing and, you know, et cetera. And the model that we created was to try to keep the school as whole as possible, but to focus on giving the right resources, the right people, and the right structures. That's what we focused on, and that was our theory of change model. Well, let's take a step back here, because I heard you talk about some really important things with some really important numbers, right? So 26% to 86% in eight years. I heard you talk about processes around cohesion, right? I heard you talk about making sure that you kept as much of the infrastructure in place as possible. And I heard you talk about partnerships. Let me zero in on some of these key pieces. So the first, let's talk about cohesion. I know, you know, that every leader mm-hmm. needs to come up with a consistent vision that people can get behind, but yeah. it's all sorts of things coming on, particularly when you're trying to turn around a school, because everybody has some idea on how to do it for you, right? right like right, you yeah. knew, then yeah. you wouldn't be in this situation. So tell me a little bit about this notion of cohesion, clarity, and getting mm-hmm. your staff on board with the vision. Get another great question. You think about a system and how we respond to it. And I think we've seen it happen incorrectly in many ways. A person will come in and blame the kids. You know, these kids are the problem. They're lazy. They don't value education. Their parents don't value education. And they stay there. Some people come in and blame teachers and say it's the teaching core. These teachers are lazy and they're not really here for the kids. They blame administration. You're right. And I think anytime you start to identify a subgroup of individuals as the reason for a system failing, you are responding to what's wrong in the moment Mm. as opposed to what happened historically. Mm. So we wanted to ask the what happened questions. What happened in this school that led parents to stop coming to PTA meetings? What happened in this school that had teachers more focused on disciplinary measures than academic excellence? What happened in this school where administrators felt disempowered to actually lead the school and their job was just to put out fires daily. What happened in this school that the community turned its back on it? What happened in the school that the state decided that after 10 years of consistent failure, enough's enough. I mean, I mean that's a pretty big decision from the state to say, you can no longer govern this school board district. We're going to give it to someone else who may or may not even have a proven track record of school turnaround. Like University of Rochester did not have a proven track record of school turnaround. They don't even have an undergraduate program. So you think about the desperate measures that these sometimes reform or transformation efforts. And the only way to get people to come together is to create some coherence. So we looked at two theoretical frameworks to do our work. One was around distributed leadership, and that was the basis of my dissertation. And it really focuses on trying to eliminate the idea that there is a single heroic figure in any organization that can create and sustain change. That true leadership is one that allows folks to understand and be empowered to do the work to the extent that they own the success and the failure of the organization. So not just doing the work. And if it doesn't work out well, then blame the superintendent. But like we are going to co-create curriculum. We're going to co-create with kids and families the culture expectations. We're going to co-create with the community how we you know, close the access gap between students who can go to, you know, travel sports and music and arts and those who can't because of the financial situation. And so what are all the things that we need to coalesce around to do this work? The other critical piece in this partnership was that the University of Rochester had a year to create its EPO plan or Educational Partnership Organization plan, where every teacher had to sign off that they were willing to do this work. And that was to teach an extra hour in a workday, to co-create and develop curriculum, that honored our community to utilize planning times to ensure that it was collaborative with administrators, with teachers, go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Talk about coherence. Like you said, it's anchored in something commonly understood. 
yeah. commonly created. And our teachers and staff and parents and community help to co-create that EPL document. And that document is our public contract with our community. And it's that contract that drives our work, drives our decisions, and that we hold ourselves accountable to implementing and revising when necessary. It's this contract of the community, right? With the community. Mm-hmm. Right. Co-creating distributed leadership. I keep hearing these ideas of how we create bonds, right? Mm-hmm. How we create clarity around the exchange processes for this, for that, right? Mm-hmm. So take me down now to the on the ground. University of Rochester is coming in. You're coming in here. What are the levers that you start to pull to create that sense of we got each other here? What happened versus what will happen? Yeah, and I'll tell you, it was not easy the first couple of years. <laughs> so, so I believe it. I mean, I mean you, you had teachers who would say, this is our fifth or sixth innovative plan that we had to follow. And whenever we felt like we had progress, then the money went away, the structure went away, the leader mm-hmm. went away, right? Yeah. So they were feeling a bit untrustworthy of the university or any person coming in to do this work because of their past experiences. You had parents and kids, many of which you went through the same system and it failed them. Say, what's going to make this any different? You know, why is the university, you know, the secret weapon for change? And yet the university, quite frankly, who had to put aside its its ivory tower mentality to say, we're going in here to work for the people, not doing the work to the people. No more books, right? That's right. And so that took a level of humility as well. So I think we had to do a couple of things. First, we had to all be humble enough to accept that we had to change. Like the change was not an option. We had a, a good 29% graduation rate. We ran our numbers in our first semester of our first year. The grad rate was on target for 19%. It was actually regressing. We were in the, in the middle of that downward spiral. We had to kind of pause, stop, and almost reset mid-year. And so I would say it was being honest with people about where we were. It was being honest enough to say we have to change. And by year three, I remember my staff being, I put on the board the word efficacy mm. on one slide. And... I said, if we don't feel or think or believe, honestly, that we have the ability to get our desired results, we're in this for the wrong reason. Like, mm-hmm. there's no other person coming in and do this work. We're not creating new kids. We're not creating new parents. We're not creating new colleagues. We're not going to go into a time machine and pull some magic scars for It's us. Like, this is the, this is we are it. We are it. At one point, someone said to me, you know, we got to talk to the EPO. And I said, you all are the EPO. Like, the EPO is a document. Yeah. Right? <laughs> It's a set of principles like you all are the EPO. And it was like almost like that, that watching the Wiz, you know, when Richard Pryor is behind the screen, the green curtain, and people are like, this is the Wiz. Like, I'm like, no, it's y'all. Like, y'all live in the land, you know? So, yeah. yeah. So I, I honestly think that was a pivotal moment for us. And then the next slide after efficacy was empowerment. Mm-hmm. And I said, so if I'm asking you to believe you have the ability to create these and achieve these desired results, then I have to authentically empower you and I got to get out your way. So I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the authority. You need to take the power, take the authority. Let's help shape this together. And this whole idea of interpersonal accountability came up. And that's where, and that's something that Dennis Sparks talks about in one of a few of his books. But it's the idea, again, that there are no those single rogue figures, that we have to get to a point where people are so intimately involved in the work that they own the success and failure. And there's no one to blame but themselves. And blame is not a negative connotation. It means it's up to them to then make the corrective actions necessary for themselves, for their colleagues within that space. And I think once people understood that I wasn't going anywhere, university wasn't going anywhere. There was a couple of times where, you know, our loyalty to the school was tested. And I think we passed that test and making some staffing decisions and changes, et cetera, that people had to see that we were serious about this work. 
I think then and only then where people really uh, totally bought into this change model and started to see themselves as being owners in this work. Let me take this back to you sure. because you, you mentioned the word efficacy, right? And you, and you painted a story of a system where folks were no longer invested, where the community right. wasn't invested, the parents, the students, nobody believed. Mm-hmm. And you put this word efficacy that says that I believe I have the ability to do the things that I want to do. Right. And then you redirected that and you said, you are the EPO. There is there is no institution. We are that institution. Are That's right. And I just I want to really reflect on that because it's this idea that we can do things. We can make things better. That yeah. what is doesn't have to be. That drives a little bit of that change that you talked about. Yeah, and I want to be clear, like the efficacy was used in all spaces for students, too. The state was in a funding crisis, and it was proposed that, that the RCSD had proposed they were going to cut a bunch of teachers, which mm-hmm. meant that the teachers that we had, just because of last and first out, was going to remove some of their favorite teachers. Our kids staged a walkout of the building. I mean, a thousand kids protesting and dumped the building to walk downtown or protest at City Hall, and we helped organize it. Mm-hmm. I said, listen, your teachers can't protest with you because... They'll break union lines. You can't get them in trouble. Mm-hmm. I said, but administrators can make sure that the places around you are safe, are safe enough for you all to walk the streets and do this protest. The kids weren't asking me, can I protest? They were telling me they were going to protest. Mm-hmm. And I was asking them, can you help us structure in a way that's safe for you? For mm-hmm. parents, when we first got there, we had one parent on the PTA and she advocated for the rights of her single child. Mm-hmm. But the rights of her child did not reflect the needs of our school community. Mm-hmm. Within a year, we put a special commission together. We had 40 to 50 parents and community people engaged. And we, I said, now that you have the numbers, how are you going to leverage this? You know, Rudy Crew in his book talks about demand parents. So mm-hmm. how are you going to become demand parents within this community? What do you mm-hmm. need? What do you want to see? And they've been demanding ever since. I mean, it's, you know, it's like once someone feels that they are empowered and they yeah. see the benefits of that, even if they don't always get what they want, they feel affirmed, they feel validated, they're willing to understand a different point of view, then they'll never go away. Mm-hmm. They'll be your best recruiters for future students, for future parents, for future staff members. And I think that's what we've created. That does not mean we haven't had our issues. It does not mean that everyone thinks we're doing the right thing, even internally. But I think people would all say they know where we're headed, why yeah. we're headed there. And if they're going to argue a point, they have to argue it from a from a process standpoint, right? So this is not a good or bad conversation, right? This is because that's too personal. Uh, We're going to go from right or wrong. Does this decision violate the tenets of our agreement? Mm -hmm. If it does, then we need to change it. If it does not, then we're going to continue it. We can modify it, but we're not going to have a good or bad. I think you did this wrong. Well, tell Mm -hmm. me what I did wrong. We can talk from that perspective. I'm not going to have it a personal conversation about if I'm a good leader or not, if you're a good teacher or not, that goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. We, we, we can talk about this plan. We can talk about where we want to head. We're going to talk about it with evidence. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, by following this, we moved from 29 to 86%. Yeah. yeah. And, and arguably it should be at 90 right now. So we, mm-hmm. we, we didn't do it well enough. So how can we improve to get to 90? You know, and those are the type of conversations that are substantive and conversations that allow people to think about the conversation before they bring the question up and to have a point of discernment that allows us to find common ground and common place. And I don't care if it's a student, a parent, community member, a teacher, staff member, we're all in this together. Let me take this to you because I think for our listeners, you raise a really good point. And I think this is a really good learning point for folks. How do we depersonalize things and make it about the problem? How do we focus on the problem, not necessarily the people and use the process as a way to really elevate that problem? Because to your point, right, we're always going to have problems with each other. Everybody <laughs> loves each other every day, right? right? But if we could make the problem about 
young people graduating, focus on like, well, what's this constraint? How are we going to do something about that? We can depersonalize it and make for progress. Because I imagine, I think some of the challenges that in the past is the pressure comes down. And when the pressure comes down, we turn on each other, right? And we start making this about each other rather than how do we move forward in that 29, 35, 89, 95, et cetera space. Yeah, and also honoring one's past and that communities, that community's truth. One of the topics that I'll talk a lot about is because people don't talk about it, but is it's you have to understand that within these schools, within these communities, particularly communities that have been marginalized, is you have content experts and you have context experts. And so I needed to get the context of where we were from past students, from past parents of students, from the community itself, from city council members, from former board members. So my first two or three years was really trying to understand the context while also working on the instructional and academic, but empowering people who were better at that than I was, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So as a superintendent, I can't be the instructional leader, the operations person, the political person, and do all those things equally well. So we found the smartest people to do the instruction. We would meet one-on-one, one-on-five, and then they went out and did that work. And when I got the sense that they truly understood where we were headed and why, then I went to the political piece. And from the mm-hmm. political piece, I moved to the social piece, right? And yeah. then the experiential pieces. And so... Because the community, the context experts were saying to us, we need these things. These yeah. might, these things might be important to you, but before we lean in, we need to make sure that our kids are protected safely, yeah. not just physical harm, but social emotional harm, mental harm. They wanted to make sure these kids were not going to have teachers belittling them, talking down to them, marginalizing them, not having them see themselves in the history. And we know we had teachers in there. I can tell you there were teachers who were doing that eight years ago who no longer do that. Mm-hmm. You can't fire your way out of poor schools, right? Mm-hmm. You have to make sure that the staff members understand where you're headed. Yeah. Allow them to address their past practices, their past ills in ways that make sense for them. But to also understand that if it continues, the standards that if it continues, if it happens again, now that you know better, do I better. expect better. And if you don't do better, then you got to go, you know, mm-hmm. but that's a different conversation to have. Cause I can say, we talked about this here. We did our culturally responsive work here. And so what, how does this comment violate Forget is it good or bad comment. How does it violate these tenants that you trained on for four years? Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a second on this. I keep coming back to this idea, and I want to raise it up for our listeners here. It's not about morals. It's about standards and about reflections on those standards, right? Yeah. Like okay. once we come together and said, these are our common understanding. This is our social contract. You got me. I got you. The point of correction or the corrective action is how well did you live up to these concepts, standards? And what can we do to move forward? I just want to raise that. Good, bad, good person, bad person, racist, not racist. Did you do it? Didn't you do it? Because morals, I mean, whose morals reign supreme? We know, we've definitely learned the last seven, eight years is that people come to, even good intentioned people have a different set of, of morality and integrity around their personal beliefs. Mm-hmm. Some people are driven by past experiences. Some are driven good or bad. Some by religious beliefs, some by, you know, whatever it is. Like people come to the table with their own set of principles. Yeah. And I don't have time to define someone else's principles. Nor do I want somebody spending time trying to define mine. But what I can define is the outcomes and the path to get there. Now, if your morals don't allow you to take that journey, then you got to select yourself out of that space. I don't want you to be in a place that you can't be successful. Right. Or that you feel are in conflict with where you want to head. If you truly don't believe that our kids, particularly kids who are from marginalized communities, unrepresented groups, can't achieve at the same levels as the district where your kids go to school in, because it's not where our kids are, right? Hear that. If you don't believe that, then this is not the right place for you. Yeah. 
Because that's that place where your kids go. That's not our standard. Our standard is even above that. Because I've worked in suburban schools. No standards there are high. They just happen to have a lot of parents who have means, who have access to education and kids I get heard. through. So that's not my standard either. So when we talk about what our kids expect, it's got to be identified up front. Yeah. And then we have to work towards that. And where I see in many urban settings, particularly those who can't just start new, is that there is a, within those communities, there is a sense of complacency based on a low standard of excellence or low standard of expectations. Yeah. And so I think those low expectations is what people are just norm to. Good intention folks, folks of color, they really only move students to what's better than they're currently in or they're currently at. And they don't actually understand where they need to go. And we spent that year planning, defining the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that's work that a lot of school systems don't do and they should. And I honestly, I think charter schools have the opportunity to do that because they're building it and submitting the application to the states and they're yeah. building these models as they go. So they have time to actually think about the work. Mm-hmm. I think often in well-established districts that are failing, the thinking about the work has taken a back seat to trying to just work their way through the problem. Yeah. And I think that's problematic. And I think that's the difference between, you know, what's happened at East in Rochester City School District and perhaps what's happened to other schools within Rochester who really haven't had the opportunity to think about the work. They're really focused on trying to muddle through what's, you know, what they're currently facing. Well, let's talk about this opportunity to think. Urban Assembly is a nonprofit, right? We work on behalf of New York City Department of Education, as well as schools across the country to design and improve schools across a range of outcomes. You worked with the University of Rochester. Tell me about this space that a third party can help provide for leaders to reflect on practices that, that work and matter from your experience. Absolutely. Again, I think it takes the right third party, right? <laughs> because I'm with it. You get some third parties in there who might have you regress. But I would say for the university standpoint, I, you know, I heard Pedro Aguirre say once that, you know, next to every underperforming, underserved school system is a very successful, well-established university or college. And so you think about in the most impoverished school settings, there's some type of well-established, well-informed, world-renowned university present. Cambridge, yeah. you know, Rochester, whatever the case may be. Yeah, New Haven, Yale. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. see it everywhere, right? Yeah. And so, and these are all, same programs are also creating your next set of teachers and administrators, or they're writing ed policy briefs. And so there's a disconnect between what's mm-hmm. happening in the P-12 space and the higher ed space. And that's just something we have to acknowledge. And then you have not-for-profits, which actually play a critical role and being the bridge between what happens in schools, what happens in universities, what's happening in the business community based on their demands, and the type of schools that have to be created to meet all those specific those demands as well. Where I think the third party works well is when there's a common set of ideas that surface between the third party, the school system, and whatever that other entity is, if it's a university or if it's the business community or college, whatever it is, right? There has to be some trust formed and some common principles and ideas and outcomes that are seen. Where I see where it hasn't worked is when a third party comes in with their set of ideas. Hard charging. It says, you must do this to be successful. Yeah. Or the school system comes in and says, we only need you for this, but we're going to annoy these other five things. We want you to focus on these five things. And you're saying as a third party, simply those five things are the most critical leverage points. They matter. Right. They matter. So so I think third party, just as being a third party, is, is not the solution. I think creating partners who have some credibility, who's able to create and facilitate conversations in ways that allow us to get to 
one, two, three things we want to focus on collectively yeah. that matches their content knowledge again, but also addresses the context of mm-hmm. that school system that's uniquely designed for those kids, those parents, that administrative team, those teachers. I think that's where the magic occurs, but it takes humility. It takes having those those right or wrong conversations. You know, does this violate our set of principles or not? And it makes us rethink how we address the problem and being able to think about it. I really think what's happening in urban schools right now is an inability to truly understand the problem and to think mm-hmm. about it, to develop a cohesive plan to address it. And have a lot of my colleagues are in reaction mode and they've been that All way since before, but especially since COVID. Yeah. And, and I think having these thought partners are critically important. That's what we've done here. It's what I do in my consulting business. I do a lot of work with, as just leaders, thought partners for leaders. I think, you know, it helps them understand and identify what they've always seen mm-hmm. as a problem, but they had no time to really think about it. Yeah. That's the work that you do and the work that needs to be done. And universities can play a critical role in that. You have people here who are trained in qualitative research, who understand mm-hmm. how people shape solutions. And you have mm-hmm. people who are quantitative experts who can look at what the numbers say. And then you have people who are experts in mixed methods. So I think you have the resource at universities, but we really use them in ways that fit the P-12 narrative. Well, let me take us back here because we've come up to this like big idea around the ecosystem context content. I want you to imagine I'm sitting in the school right now. I've got, let's say a 30% graduation rate. I want to follow your example. Take me to maybe three steps and say, Step one, step two, step three. And I know context is different. I know content is yeah. different, but I got a lot of folks out here who are struggling. Right. And I just want them to hear from you. What would you think about in terms of your work with them? So I'm going to be honest. The first one, and I know it sounds simple, is to get into a humble mindset. Like you have to really say to yourself, am I willing to peel back the layers of the onion to truly know what's going on? And to acknowledge that part of that failure may be based on things that you've done, even with good intention. Mm. I tell people when we often speak, I said, you understand that every problem that I've seen in schools, there are people still in the system who at some point were empowered because decisions that they made years ago that are now leading to these outcomes. It could be stringent suspension policies. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was great. Yeah. Went in with heavy young kids, and now you got kids dropping out in math. Right. Yeah. It could be the person who says, you know, we're going to give teachers more autonomy and flexibility in the classroom to teach whatever they want because it's, you know, it's an art and a science. And now realize they have no consistent standards for what they mean by literacy outcomes at each grade level or numeracy outcomes. So, yes, at the time, there was a push to give people more freedom, but now you see that freedom sometimes creates inequities within what students are getting within the classroom. Mm -hmm. So being able to sit, and that's not to find fault from a negative standpoint, but to say, here's our current reality. How do we co-construct this force of humility, being able to peel back and to understand the root causes, again, not what's wrong, what happened. What happens force you to ask a certain set of questions, different set of questions and just identifying the problem as it exists. Mm-hmm. And I think also, I think that the last thing you asked for three is to develop systems of accountability that allow you to inspect what you expect. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean accountability from a, we talk about accountability in New York State is, you know, if you don't do X, then you're closed. Or if you don't do what, like accountability is not a bad word. It is a conscious way of checking in to understand. So here's an example of that for leaders out there. 
I tell my school principals and my administrators and my teachers, when we do classroom walkthroughs, we do observations, it is a dipstick into our school model. If we spent four months working on questioning, as an example, and we walk into 20 classrooms and there's no questioning happened more deeply than it happened a year before, right? It is not a reflection of the teachers. It's a reflection of our systems. We asked the question when we rolled this out, was it coherent? Was it coherent enough? Was it palatable? Did it make sense? How might we revisit it? Do we spend too little time on it? Not enough time, too much time, right? So where did the idea from questioning come from? Was that surface from the staff or did someone have a good idea and just implement it and it wasn't the most critical thing that they were working on? It wasn't the thing closest connected to the PD they had the years prior, right? So it's a dipstick into the reality that we're trying to create within our model not necessarily blaming the staff. Mm -hmm. If you walk into every classroom in your building and teaching is poor, that has more to do with you than it does with the teachers. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. a hard pill to swallow, but it's the truth. It's the truth. You're not going to fire your way out of it. So how do you restructure every conversation, every staff meeting, every interaction to address the issues that you see happening within that school? And then how, more importantly, how do you get other people to see those same issues and surface those problems, right? So, so when you talk about interpersonal accountability, yeah, that's not the leader coming in and saying, "Did you all notice that the teaching here is horrible?" Right? That's not creating any accountability. That's you claiming it. But it's right. saying, "Hey, we're going to do some classroom walkthroughs. We're going to create some walkthrough protocols. We're going to talk about the data that we see. We're going to ask some questions around how do we enhance this." That's how you get people to have the safe conversation about the work and create that sense of common accountability, interpersonal accountability, and then more importantly, common trust. Yeah. So I know it sounds simple to say, hey, be humble, then see everything that's wrong. But but that's the most honest place to start. Yeah. So let me take this back. We got be humble. We got accountability systems. Expect what you expect, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got this notion, too, of trust. And I want to throw this one more in here because, Sean, you come back to this. Focus on the problem, not the people, right? That, hey, you're not a bad teacher. You're not a bad person, but this is the expectation and this is where we're at. What is the problem? What's the difference between what we're doing and what we need to get to, right? So those are three things that folks can really think about in terms of getting on this journey, right? in terms of proven outcomes. And let me just define trust the way we define it here. I don't know if this is from Stephen Covey's book or a professor here, Dr. Steve Eubing, wrote a couple of books. Dr. Eubing defines trust as competence plus character. Mm -hmm. And if you apply that to anything in life, right? I don't care if it's a relationship, someone that you broke up with, either they displayed a lack of confidence, you know, they talk out of both both sides of their mouth or a character. They've done something that has been flawed. Anybody in your life that you have a trust broken, it has to do one one or both of those things. Yeah. So when you're walking through schools as a school leader or as a teacher leader or as a teacher who is trying to make impact with themselves and their colleagues, you know, you have to be conscious of sometimes being consciously incompetent. There are times you say, I just don't know. Yeah. And I'm seeking the answer. And I'll give an example of that. Or you have to make sure that you are not displaying a lack of character in ways that people don't want to follow and lead behind you because they know that if things get thick, you're going to turn around. You're going to change the perspective. You're going to change your tune. You're going to lie. You're going to cheat. Like those things don't last long. So I had a, a reading specialist my first year as a principal, Jim Bosco, I'll call her name. And a phenomenal reading teacher. I was a history teacher. I was a pretty good administrator, instructional leader, but I was not a literacy expert. Yeah. And I remember walking, we had this issue. We had some of our English folks who just, I walked in the classroom, I was like, man, this is just not, this is not, kids are asleep. You know, I'm trying to figure out what the curriculum was prior to my arrival, if there was mm-hmm. one. 
And Jen had just a way of explaining things that got people to move in the most respectful ways. And I said to her, I don't know much about literacy. So I said, I need two things from you. One, you're going to lead the literacy-wide initiative in the building. And I want to be 10 times smarter than I am about literacy next year than I am right now. That's, mm-hmm. your, that's your goal. I'm pulling you, releasing you from your classroom. That's your new job. And she worked with me every single week. We walked through classrooms together. The teachers knew why we were walking through. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, Sean's learning about literacy. It was about my learning. I'm telling them, I'm walking through classroom with Jen, so yeah. I can get better. I'm not coming here to observe you. I need to understand and identify when kids are actively reading, when they're fake reading, when they're truly decoding, when they're not. Yeah. So after about a year or two working with her, I felt more proficient about that work. Teachers saw me taking that journey together by showing my incompetence. And I did it not getting in front of the staff meeting after the second visit saying, all right, I'm the guru of literacy now. We're going to do this to fix the problem. I'm like, no, Jen, this is you. And I mm-hmm. sat with the teachers and learned. And so when you show that level of humility and you celebrate at East, we always say we celebrate our incompetence daily. And we say that jokingly, but also seriously, like you have to model for kids and model for teachers that you don't know everything, but you're willing to learn. And so if you can celebrate that incompetence with people on that journey, people are much more willing to be risk takers, much more willing to learn, to lean in, to try a new lesson, mm-hmm. knowing it may fail, you know, in an effort to get better at it. Like that's the type of environment that you want. So we say, we talk about trust you and I, we're talking about, you know, developing that over time through the process. Right. Don't trust me once we get to 86% and say, now I believe you. That ain't trust. Yeah. I'm getting on a bandwagon. That's the Cowboys. <laughs> right, right. That's right, that's right. And all they fans. That's right. You got to trust the process like the bills. You got to trust the Yeah, but you got to get in there. <laughs> so, 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 so that type of work, I think what I've seen happen in schools that we've supported in their change process, schools obviously we've done at East, in schools that we'll see and support in the past. It is authentic. It's real. It could be humbling at times. It could be frustrating most of the time. But when you hit that stride, there is nothing like seeing a kid in a professional work environment four years later, and that kid says to you, I left school prepared. Yeah. College, career, military, I left school prepared. And and that's, that's the legacy work that many of us will never see. That's not why we do it. But it is good when you actually see it. It's just a reminder that you have the ability, back to efficacy, you have the ability to create these desired results, not just for yourself, but for the community that you serve. So talk about what moves you through those frustrating moments, Sean. What keeps yourself sustained? How did you keep the energy up so that you could provide that energy for your staff? I'll tell you some bad things I did, some good things I did. <laughs> I've probably done the same things, man. <laughs> so, so the bad things that I did is I tried to protect everyone. Yeah. So I became this like bubble around the school. There was something happening in the district with the union or other issues. I protected them. And I, I wore and took all the arrows. Yeah. And I thought that was necessary of me years one, two, and three. My leaders would say to me, I remember, man, sometimes some days you walked and you like you were just a dead man walking. I and it. I didn't under I I didn't at the time realize the impact it had on them because they were more concerned for me than they were about the work. I wanted to be concerned about the work. Yeah. So I would say if I had to do it all over, do that all over again, I would have been more clear with a small set of people about the things that frustrated me and to develop some think partners around that. And instead of thinking I'm helping them, I was actually impeding their growth because they weren't working through the entire problem. Mm -hmm. I presented the problem after I fixed 70% of it. I hear that. And I think that didn't allow them to be better leaders over time. So I would have definitely brought in those key leaders. Not everybody. Everybody can't know the world's on fire. But the key <laughs> leaders who can actually walk you through and they can see 
your intentional moves, the political moves, the structural, the symbolic, the human resource moves that you made to get to that 70% point, the other folks can take it over. Yeah. That's critically important when you're trying to create the next generation of leaders or improve leaders who have already been in place. Appreciate um, that. So those thought partners are critically important. I would also say that I did a lot of writing, just, just journaling. And I wasn't great at it. I didn't do it every day. I, I won't even sit here and say something that I, I sat down for a month, right? But if I picked up and I had a thought or I had a frustration, just thinking about it to myself and writing it down, I may never read it again. I got mm-hmm. it out of my head. And I didn't take it home to family. I didn't take it home with my friends. You know, mm-hmm. it, it became the thing that I, I dealt with. And then I will tell you that in year six, I actually got a therapist, mm-hmm. not a life coach, because every life coach is not a therapist. You can mm-hmm. find I do both. But I found a therapist because I noticed that the work of changing systems can create some very toxic habits, mm. like drinking, not working out. I hear it. I mean, all those things, right? And so having someone to talk about my personal and professional life to create a balance yeah. became very freeing to me. It allowed me to let some things go. It allowed me to double down on some other things. And it was what I needed for my soul. A life coach can tell you how to be a better professional. They might miss the critical things that lead to depression or anxiety, whatever those issues are in someone's personal life. So if you can find both, great. But having a certified counselor, we don't talk about that enough. And leadership is critically important. Just to have someone you check in once a month, once every two months, whatever you need, just to be like, I'm feeling off today. I'm feeling great today. I mean, you don't have to go there when you're down. Mm-hmm. I used to go there and be like, I'm killing it. Killing I'm it. killing it this month. You know, I Somebody's got to say it, man. Somebody's going like, no, I'm like, I can't say this and then people going to be on brag. I'm killing it. This is what I did. You know, and she would just sit with me and just laugh and be like, yeah, yeah I remember that. And then she would say, I remember a year ago when that wasn't the case. You know what? Because you forget. <laughs> you forget. You forget because you're all hitting the problems all the time. Right. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wait, no, actually, I've made progress in that space. Yeah, she goes, remember a year from now when you might not remember this moment too. So having that person who can recenter you yeah. in those best and those best of times when those in those worst of times is also critically important. I think that's that's and I would say this, I don't that's especially important for leaders who were first gen students themselves, who come from a family who may or may not have had people who they can talk to about, you know, being a CEO or a boss or a leader. Because they don't have those aunts or uncles who've done that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it could be for those who've been marginalized so much that they have a lack of security themselves. Um, mm-hmm. They see a lot, particularly with men of color. So I think for those folks, it becomes critically important because it's not only a new space you may be in and a new set of emotions, but those insecurities kick in. And you may not be as effective as you could have been because you were nervous to to mess up and not lose the job. Mm-hmm. You're filing six figures, I want a family making. I mean, all those factors come into play. Yeah. But I think it's critically important for the audience to hear that those are natural feelings and to seek help. You make enough money now, seek some help. And I think you'll feel the benefits long-term. Well, let me just appreciate you for that, Sean. I think we all as leaders feel similar things, right? Leaders like marriage, I feel like everybody goes through the same challenges. And, and to hear that and hear you speak to that and hear you raise that up in a way that I think gives people access to some of the challenges and some of the things that you could have done and some of the things that you are doing and will do, I think it's a great gift to all our folks out there who think it's just them, right? Everybody thinks like, oh, if only, you know, I was somebody else, but we all going through the same challenges and it's about getting that step one day at a time and moving ahead and solving the problems as they come. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And have those affinity groups that allow you to just be you. And I'm talking about you being you. I have a couple of affinity groups here that we created locally. Yeah. We meet every few months and it's a cross sector of leaders of color. And, you know, we come in 
you know, Jay-Z's blaring and, you know, we got, you know, stuff over here and stuff over there. And people just, you could just, people just relax. You can, they walk in, you could just see layers of work layers just coming off and yeah. people just relax. Yeah. And then it's almost as if they can re-energize and go out back out there and do that work because sometimes you just can't be who you want to be when you're at your family union at the workplace. You should not be, right? You should not be. But no. around other leaders of color or other leaders in general who are going through the same struggles, I think it's important. I don't care who those, I don't care what those affinity groups are. Mm-hmm. It can be defined by gender, race, religion. It can be just common interest. This is not just for people of color. I'm saying like your affinity groups are those that you can bond with from a social perspective and a professional one. And everyone, <laughs> so I said to people, when you bring someone new to this group, they got to have your same spirit, positive vibes only. You hold them. That's your boy, right? This is your guy. Right. Your man. Right. This is you brought this dude here. Right. Okay, right. exactly right. Because if they don't, act, they act, they don't act right. You got to go too. This is who, yes. this is who you hang with. Right? I understand. So, so yeah. it is critically important that that level of security and comfort. Because then once you feel comfortable, now I look to the left and I say, "Hey, David, man, listen, I'm struggling, man. Listen, I got this evaluation, and my supervisor said I have to be more attentive to details." I think I'm very detailed. And you might say, man, listen, you don't even answer emails on time. I'm like, what? You know, and it's just someone who can be honest with you in that moment. Or say that, hey, that, me... that moment, though, Sean, where you're like, look, man, let me just tell you something. Yeah, right, right. No, you do a lot like, of things well, man. You do, but... You're very good at very many things. <laughs> emails, not the strength. Right. It's not right. a situation with you, but like, I, I know that feeling. Yeah, and I think that's critically important. So I, I, know, I know this may seem like a little disconnected from the question, but I just want people to understand that this is not a journey that you take alone. Yeah. This is not a journey that you have to pretend everything is going well when you know it's not. Your spirit telling you that it's not. Yeah. But you got to have a plan in place for when those things occur. And you can't go to people when you're in crisis. You got to establish that social network before a crisis occurs. So you know who in that group you can go to for that specific ask. Mm-hmm. And you want to go to the person who's going to be honest with you. If I say to you, I'm not great at time management, David, because I know you're a type A person, then I expect you to say to me, no, you're not. But here's what I'm going to do to help you get better. You're going to download this app and you're going to use this form and you're going to set aside this amount of time every morning just to catch up. Like, because that's how we know we really love each other. Right. I'm trying to come to you and tell you nonsense. and You're like, right, 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 right. Them them people tripping. When back of your mind, you know, yeah, they're right. So I think that's critically important in this work, too. You talk about school turnaround. I'll go back there. Most of the innovation that we have, most of the hard course corrections that we took was because teachers Parents, kids said we need to do so. It was not the university, not the state, not the school board. It was the people who were experiencing the EPO on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. It was the Spanish parent who said, I need a dedicated line to a Spanish speaking secretary. I've been asking for this four years before you all got there. And we had four Spanish speaking secretaries in our building. And it took me five minutes to get that line rerouted. Mm -hmm. If she had not said that to me, Honestly, eight years from now, we probably would still would have had that dedicated line because it wasn't Mm -hmm. something that I experienced every day. I heard that. Right. My privilege is I call, speak English and I get what I want. I didn't think that there wasn't anyone that that system wasn't already set up. That's that humbling thing, though, what you said before. Right. Like you got to take a step back and be like, maybe my experience is not everybody's experience. And then again, honor the past. That was her past experience. There are a lot of assumptions that I made, good or bad, about this school before I got there that. Some proved to be correct, and some were completely out of whack. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about peeling back the layers, that's I'm talking about that question what happened. You're really going down to the grain. 
What does a day look like for a kid? I'll tell you, I tell leaders this. I do this at least once a year. I will pull a kid's schedule and I will walk their schedule for the day. I hear it. I want to know what this, how often, how tired is this kid at the end of the day? Going and to the bathroom. I did, I, yeah. I mean, one time I did, I was by third <laughs> period, my eyes were closing. I hear it. I didn't have three engaging lessons. Yeah. You're right. And then I've had days where I've done that and I'm like, yo, I would send my own kid. I wish I was a student here. Right. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so I think just getting down to what does a parent experience? What does a student experience? Go through your website. I mean, the other day, my, myself, my, my technology person went through, we found so many broken links. And I usually find them when I'm trying to show somebody something on Zoom. They're like, hey, I'm like, here, I'm like, oh, oh. That's the best way to find them, right? You're like, oh. I'll, I'll email that to you, right? But, so, yeah. but that's someone's experience. Mm-hmm. And they hit that link on the first try, they ain't going back to your website. So I think all of those things as new leaders or young leaders or experienced leaders, when I talk about inspecting what you expect, if you say you have an inclusive environment, if you say you have a parent-focused environment, if you say kids are expected to have a student voice, teachers feel empowered, if you truly are saying that and your system does not not only promote it, but it's memorialized somewhere, then it's not happening. And I think those are the type of, when I say one, being humble, then two, peeling back the layer, really doing that work. For some people, it breaks them, quite honestly. Yeah, it breaks. So, so I get. So I'm transitioning jobs. I'm becoming the new vice president here at the university. Congratulations, by thank the you, way. Brother. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Working on yeah. partnerships, and my principal is going to replace me as superintendent. I noticed. Yeah, and she said to me, "What's the hardest part about this job? What do you think is going to be the hardest part for me?" I said, "Is realizing the stuff that you're working on for four years hasn't been implemented." Hmm. And she said, "What?" I said, "Trust me." When you are at 30,000 feet looking at the work that you thought were happening and you see mm. it's not happening, that's going to be the most frustrating because you're going to say to yourself, what have I been doing? You're going to feel inadequate. You're going to feel like you are not a good leader. I said, you got to breathe and say, okay, how do I get back to that place? And she started laughing. I said, because there are things that you tell me we're not doing anymore that I thought we were still doing. I know the feeling. I said, so I said, that's good. Right. I said, so she had now, she has the opportunity to go back and peel back her own onion to yeah. see what she thought was happening in the building with her APs or her teacher leaders that just wasn't happening. And now she's advocating from a different vantage point. Yeah. You know, and I think that's going to be humbling for her as well. But I'm excited about this new role at U of R doing community partnerships and getting yeah. people throughout the organization, universities, organization to be more embedded in the school community, larger community, not just schools, larger community, medical school and all that. Yeah. And I'm excited for that. But my heart will always be in, in a P12 space. And I'm still dibble and dabble in that with my consulting business because I, I can't leave that work alone. Well, Sean, man, you are a hero of mine. I'm very proud of the work that you've done at East High and the work that you continue to do at the University of Rochester. I hope you've had an opportunity to share with our folks what it takes to be successful, what it takes to lead. I had some great takeaways from you for myself. I was taking notes. It would look like I was doing it for the podcast, <laughs> but I was just doing it for me. So on behalf of the Urban Assembly, thank you for your efforts, man. Thank you for your commitment to our community. And I wish you the best of luck in your new position over at the University of Rochester. I know you did a great job there. I appreciate it, man. I know we'll stay in touch for certain. I love following you. We sure will. We sure will. (laughs) Thank you. All right, brother. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Innovations in Education, where we bring education leaders who have made things work in the education sector. If you like this episode, please subscribe so that you can hear more great content around innovations in education. I've been your host, David Adams. Have a great day.